Continuing our last discussion, we ask, what do we know further about the influence of philosophy on the church's concept of the omniscience and being of God in the light of the Bible? We saw that although the apostolic church accepted the simple statements of the Bible concerning the nature of God, and although Paul warned against the maneuverings of men's minds as an authority of truth, nevertheless the succeeding generation saw the rise of many tendencies of injecting the ideas of men into the revealed simple truths concerning God. Continuing this further, in A.D. 313, Constantine and his co-emperor Licinius granted to the Christian church freedom of worship. This was indeed a tremendous change and was to have a great fruition of the seed that had been sown. As late as 303 to 305 A.D., determined attempts had been made to stamp out the Christian church by terrible persecution. It has been said that during those years the number of martyrs which it produced was greater than all of the men who had died for the faith of Jesus Christ from the beginning to the year 300. Christianity now, instead of being a persecuted church, became favored by the state, with the emperor himself professing to be a member. By 380 A.D., Christianity had become the exclusive religion of the state. Anyone who would hold any other religion was subject to punishment. Most of the population of the empire became members of the church, with the great majority, of course, without that vivid spiritual birth that the New Testament church had insisted upon. It had to have an established clergy who specialized on speculative theological education rather than the simple preaching of the gospel with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, as Peter spoke about. Formality of worship took the place of real spiritual joy and heart worship. Shall we be astonished at the great influx of intellectual speculation which was fostered during this period? Preachers, for the most part, were not bent on reconciling the hearts of sinners to the living God through the simple atonement of Christ, but in pacifying men's minds by amazing deductions. The early church did not attempt to work into the unrevealed mysteries of God, but accepted at face value the simple concepts of the Bible. The Bible, not philosophy, nor philosophical statements, was their guide. Anyone who undertakes to review the unending attempts to word down the inscrutable doctrine of the Trinity and the interrelation of its personalities can see for himself how far afield they went. A technical article was recently written under the intriguing title, Hip Boots for the River of Words. And we may certainly think of the idea of hip boots as we wander back through the maneuverings of men's minds when they should have been satisfied with the simple statements of biblical truth. This restless curiosity began to tamper with the natural attributes of God. We have seen from a few representative passages on the subject 
that the Bible presents the Godhead as living personalities who are inseparably connected with time. Personality is the equipment to do something with. To do anything involves succession. It is a process of putting one thought after another, one action after another, one reaction after another. We cannot form any concept of personality that does not have the area of time to operate in. We are created in the image of God, according to the Bible statement, and have a right to understand this much as to the functioning of God's personalities. But thus the Bible describes the being of God in plain assertions. Our only authority, the Bible, the only key to the certainties of the unknown world, pictures God as living in time, as having successions, as having a past, a present, and a future, as having thought and acted, as now thinking and acting, and as planning future activity. Where is the clear assertion to the contrary of these plain thoughts? If God cannot exercise great intelligence and form a new decision today, which he had not formed before, what right do we have to say that he ever could have done so? This is the very meaning of prayer. We confess our sins in great humility and are directed by faith to the cross of Christ that we may be forgiven today, right now. And God forgives us as he is moved with compassion and as a result fills our hearts with blessing. This is grace. When in distress we beseech God to consider our situation and grant help in our present hour of need, it is an expectation that he will actively look upon us and take action according to promise. When in the struggles of repentance the will seems so tragically free and unstable and we are conscious that we hold the destiny of our choice in our very hands, Theologians have speculated that this is not so, that everything is in reality fixed, that we are deceived in our consciousness of freedom and terrible responsibility, that every action that we ever shall take throughout eternity is now a fixity and is inherently known to God and has always been so. And here is the total incompatibility. Although the future is absolutely fixed, it is said, so that we are seen right now within the confines of either heaven or hell, we nevertheless manifest our freedom and change this fixed destiny. Although God, who supposedly does not live in time, foresees it as a certainty. And some go a step further than this, as did Augustine in the early 5th century and asserted that God knows every event that is coming to pass simply because he is the cause of every such event. And yet, amazingly enough, man is supposedly accountable for every event that God so induces him to bring to pass. We may indeed put an exclamation point after a statement like this. Augustine was Bishop of Hippo around 396 to 430 in North Africa and had his great controversy with Pelagius, 
from which semi-Pelagianism rose as appearing to be the more biblical view. This was that God moves upon man toward holiness and obedience, but man has been given the power by virtue of his creation in the image of God to frustrate the will and purpose of God as far as his own little limited realm is concerned. It is the power of contrary choice which alone can account for the tragic world of strife about us in the presence of a good and righteous God. Forsaking the obvious simple conscious meaning of free will, theologians became curious as to whether this self-consciousness was not, after all, deceptive. In connecting their theories upon the existence of God, they affirmed that the future did not involve uncertainties or contingencies, and yet we are not supposed to believe in fate. Certainty without fate. Imagine this. Theological speculation has also brought forth a concept of God to their own making. They have imported from the curious speculations of philosophy and from the concept of infinity in mathematics ideas that they have applied to God. They have constructed a God who is a so-called eternal now or who lives in the past, present, and future all at once, or who is above time. God is supposed to be able to move into the realm of time at any moment and perform acts in time without time being vital to his existence and then become timeless again. God is supposed to know every action he ever shall take throughout all eternity and is always supposed to have known this, and yet is supposed to have made the decision as recorded in Genesis, let us make man, and so forth. If God cannot have a new thought now, and as a result make a new decision now, what right do we have to think that he ever could have had a new thought or made a new decision? So on these theories of God and man, not only is man a subject of fate, but God himself is a subject of fate. I should most certainly like to see a systematic and thoroughgoing investigation of the Bible that would come up with proof of these tremendous ideas, taking biblical language at its face value as God intended us to take it. If this thinking has been complicated, let us remember that it is not the Bible which is responsible, but the snowball effect of rolling up the philosophical maneuverings of the centuries. Let us put them to the test of the word of the living God. There, happily, we are relieved of these complexities and find a God who has the simple qualities of personality although great beyond all words in intelligence and power he pleads with sinners with great compassion as we have recorded in the great passage in ezekiel chapter 18 and verses 30 to 31 therefore i will judge you o house of israel every one according to his way saith the lord god repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. 
For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Obviously enough, God pleads with sinners thus because of their dreadful responsibility, because of their ability in their own realm to frustrate the will of God. He thus pleads with sinners to respond to his love and kindness, to come to him so that he might forgive them in mercy through the sufferings of Christ. In our next study, we shall see that repentance or a change of mind is ascribed to God in the Bible. Our Heavenly Father, receive abundance of thanks that thy plain and simple word has been given to us as a basis, as a foundation to guide us and to free us from the complexities that man has devised as he has sought to enter in to the great sphere of thy being and form concepts about thee entirely apart from thy limited revelation. So accept thanks and may thy truth be blessed to the salvation of many hearts. May many repent and find Christ as Savior through faith in his wondrous cross. In Jesus' name, amen.